Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101, part of Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of FIBA, the International Federation of Basketball. Of course, in English, the acronym would be IFB, but the official name of the federation is in French. And the official name used to be the Fédération Internationale de Basketball en Étude. In French, that spells F-I-B-A, or FIBA. So what exactly do they do, and what is their authority? Sometimes when I come up with an idea for an episode here on Basketball History 101, I am really trying to answer a question that I have always had. As I researched this particular answer, I decided to share it with you as part of this podcast. And that is how I came across this story. As a kid growing up in the United States, I could not have cared less about FIBA or what they did, since NBA players were not allowed to play in international competitions. That meant that watching our college players compete at the Olympics was not that interesting for me since I was not familiar with that many college players, at least not back then. The last Olympics that was played before NBA players were allowed to participate was the 1988 Games in Seoul, South Korea. That American team was led by David Robinson, Danny Manning, Percy Hawkins, Stacey Augman, and Dan Marley. At the time, I did not know who any of those players were, and that is a shame on me. And I know who all those players are now, of course. Now, FIBA was founded in 1932 in Geneva, Switzerland, but it did not have broad authority. The organization was created, but in a sense, they had to convince everybody else that they were the best ones to oversee international basketball. The International Olympic Committee officially recognized basketball as a sport in 1930 in preparation for basketball to be included as a full medal sport in 1936. And by the way, now if you want to hear the full story of the 1936 Olympics, the first ones that featured basketball, go back and listen to episode 47. Those were the Olympics held in Berlin under the dictatorship of Adolf Hitler. Anyway, up until FIBA was created, there were international basketball competitions, but they all came under the authority of the International Amateur Handball Federation. After all, someone needed to jump in and organize various international tournaments around the world and the Handball Federation was willing to step up and take the lead. Team Handball includes the concept of dribbling, similar to basketball, so they were the obvious choice. Eight countries came together to form FIBA, and those countries were Argentina, Czechoslovakia, Greece, Italy, Latvia, Portugal, Romania, and Switzerland. In 1936, they named James Naismith the inventor as the honorary president of FIBA, and gradually they took over basketball oversight from the Handball Federation and began organizing international competitions on their own. Starting in 1950, they organized the Basketball World Championships, today known as the Basketball World Cup. 
The competition is held every four years to determine the best national team in the world. It alternates with the Olympics so that one of the competitions is happening every two years. And they started the Women's World Championship in 1953. The organization was firmly in charge of international basketball since the late 1930s. They create the rules, hire and train the referees, set rules for eligibility, and then otherwise organize qualifying tournaments and championship tournaments. But the rules that they set do not apply only to international competitions, like the Olympics and Basketball World Cup. Their rules apply to all professional leagues around the world except the NBA. That is what allows for international championships between professional teams. Similar to Champions League for European football, basketball has its own version of that competition called the Euro Cup, where professional teams from all over Europe compete for a continental championship. With FIBA, all national teams and professional teams have to follow their rules. The only league that is part of FIBA which has the authority to make its own rules is the NBA. For decades, they chose to not become members of FIBA because they did not want to follow the international rules for the game. That is one of the stipulations in becoming a member of FIBA. But all of that changed in 1989. FIBA would no longer be the organization in charge of amateur basketball. They would be the organization in charge of all basketball. Well, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with a story of how the NBA joined FIBA, which paved the way for NBA players to be included in international competitions. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Welcome back to the show and let us continue with how the NBA joined FIBA in 1989. This was one year after the United States had a disappointing result in the 1988 Olympics. The Americans lost to the Soviets in the semifinals and ended up with the bronze medal. While that was a factor in allowing NBA players to represent the United States for the 1992 Olympics, it was just one factor, and not even the main factor. The main factor was that FIBA realized that some of the very best international players were beginning to sign NBA contracts and were no longer eligible for FIBA-sanctioned events like the Olympics and the World Cup. In other words, the players that everybody wanted to see were no longer going to be able to participate in those tournaments. Now we are talking about players like Detlef Schrempf from Germany, Vlade Divac from Serbia, Drazen Petrovic from Croatia, and Sarunas Marcelonis from Lithuania. These guys were all in the 
NBA and bona fide international superstars. But under the old rules, they could no longer play in the Olympics. And things were going to get worse for FIBA as every year, more and more of the top international players were moving to the NBA because of the large salaries. FIBA tournaments would likely become far less significant if the best international players were not allowed to play. And that's when FIBA got the idea to begin letting NBA players participate in international events. After all, professional players from every other league in the world were allowed to play. Why not the NBA? Why was the NBA so special? With the shift to allowing NBA players to participate, the organization officially dropped the word amateur from their name. So technically, they are today known as Fédération Internationale de Basketball. And since everyone still called them FIBA, they actually just kept the acronym FIBA. Anyway, FIBA also realized that the TV ratings for the Olympics and the Basketball World Cup would go through the roof if NBA players from all countries were allowed to participate. They realized that they would become less relevant unless they changed their eligibility rules. But in order to allow NBA players to participate, they needed the partnership of the NBA. They already had partnerships with every significant professional league around the world except the NBA. The NBA would need to become a former member of FIBA in order for its players to be allowed to play. So FIBA came calling on the NBA, particularly the commissioner at the time, David Stern. Now, Stern was not that interested in joining FIBA, basically because the NBA did not need FIBA, but FIBA definitely needed the NBA. So David Stern essentially played hard to get and presented every reason why the partnership would not be good for the NBA, but FIBA was persistent. Eventually, the NBA entered into a special agreement that made the NBA a member of FIBA, but also exempted the NBA from the FIBA game rules. They are still the only FIBA-sanctioned league in the world that is allowed to make their own rules for the game. And again, the situation was that FIBA needed the NBA way more than the NBA needed FIBA. The result of the NBA becoming a formal member of FIBA is that NBA players were now eligible for all international competitions, and this was a massive game changer. Some of the top players from around the world could now go to the NBA and still represent their countries at the Olympics and the World Cup. It was very freeing. Now let us look at a particular player as an example. The player's name is Oscar Schmidt from Brazil. Schmidt is in the Hall of Fame, by the way. He is the all-time world-leading scorer, having scored over 49,000 points in his professional career, played mostly in Italy. Schmidt was a good enough player that he could have been competing in the NBA back in the early 1980s. He was a sharp shooter from the outside. His game would have translated quite well to the NBA. Well, the primary reason that Schmidt never played in the NBA is because it was really important to him to be able to play for his country. He ended up playing in the Olympics five times, and he also led Brazil to a gold medal in the 1987 Pan Am Games where they defeated the United States in a tournament held in the United States. So from now on, guys like Schmidt would no longer have to choose between playing in the NBA and continuing to play for country. But the next question was, would the American NBA players even want to play in the international competitions? Just because they were eligible did not mean that they would do it. NBA players, especially the best ones, play deep into the playoffs every year. Between the regular season and the playoffs, a player will play approximately 100 games in 8 months. Most players were going to want to rest their bodies and prepare for the following season. Playing a summer tournament was going to be physically taxing, and it did take some convincing. 
1991, when Team USA announced that they would field a team of NBA players for the 1992 Olympics, one of the first players to sign up was Magic Johnson. He then convinced Larry Bird and Michael Jordan to play as well. And once they had Jordan, everyone else wanted to sign up to be part of the team. It became an honor for NBA players to represent their countries at the Olympics and World Cup. The goal that FIBA wanted to accomplish was achieved. Back in 1992, the first time that NBA players competed at the Olympics, there were only four NBA players in the entire tournament outside of Team USA. At the Tokyo Games last year, there were so many NBA players everywhere. Every team had at least one NBA player on their roster. It felt like I recognized the starting five from nearly every single country. Spain, France, Argentina, and Australia each fielded teams at the Olympics with at least seven or eight NBA players, and some of them were NBA All-Stars. Interest around the world is amazing for these competitions because everyone knows that the absolute best players in the world are going to compete in it. It makes it much more interesting when your country's best are out there and not some second-rate team. Today, FIBA is as strong as ever as they govern basketball around the world. And personally, I love watching the Olympics and World Cup basketball. I love seeing all the great American players from different NBA teams getting together for a common goal. I also love seeing some of my favorite international NBA players like Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic, and Giannis Antetokounmpo competing for their own countries. Also, it is summer basketball. The off-season is a time when normally I would only get to watch NBA Summer League, but every other summer I get to watch the best compete for their country. International basketball is as strong as ever. Well, that does it for today. Join us next week when we share the story of how the field is selected for the NCAA tournament every year. We are going to go back to college and see how March Madness is put together. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to 
sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.